0: Thank you.
1: Outside in the real world, and here we are with the keys to the Looney Bin, boys.
2: <laughs> you might actually want to be grateful. And you're about to make some decent money.
1: What's the catch? Patricia
3: Willard scandal, 1984. <laughs> I want you to try to remember what happened 24 years ago. Use your imagination. The Shrink's figured that with these new techniques they designed, they could release hidden memories. You can hear me.
2: You okay? I want to go home. I wouldn't tell anybody about
1: this. If they find out about Hank, they're going to find out about the others. Quit of the others.
3: Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relocated to a late-night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me, as always, are my co-hosts, Brandon Hayden and John Hoffman, aka Caution. Yo! Welcome back, boys. Hello. Here we go. Number Deuce. We got Deuce. The Deuce is loose with this new <laughs> uh, new setup here. Nice. Well, glad you guys uh, decided to come back for one more, but we'll see after this. You know, it's it's always a matter of when the shoe's going to drop.
2: Yeah, well, hey, I'll tell you what's not going to drop my dentures. Thank you to Uncle <laughs> Uh fantastic denture polymer.
3: We are sponsor for the evening. Thank you, Uncle Gentry's.
2: Right. A fine Uncle,
3: product indeed,
2: Uncle Junt.
3: I uh, I uh, I endorse it. Keeps my my teeth in my skull. I'd yeah, be just well, you know jawing and gibbering around with like I'd be like mr ed just roll we're all there wilbur it wasn't for uncle Gentry's. <laughs>
1: yeah. this is yeah. already starting out insane in this episode
2: <laughs> well hey oh. insane is the name of the game with the movie that we're watching actually
1: exactly I, I exactly was, i was gonna say in response to you saying like we came back for another episode like I feel like I'm already on a roll two weeks in a row doing something consistent. Like if, if that's not a sign that this is going to last forever, I don't know what is.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Uh, well, since the last time we were, we were uh, together uh, really any, any kind of honorable mentions, any highlights over the week fellas?
3: Well, I was hanging out with you like pretty much like the whole time since be- between, last week and now. Yeah. We started we attempted to watch Ark of the Sun God. Oh and that, failed. that
2: ended fail that was a that was crash and burn. It was immediate Vietnam. So I don't even I don't even know why he has it on his shelf. As soon as he puts it in, it <laughs> it's like it goes to this algorithm and then shuts down.
3: Yeah, it's a real piece of shit VHS tape. It's gonna have to get chucked. But I did put it back up there. <laughs> 'Cause I'm hoping maybe I'll get it to work. So it's Nail. I'm gonna give it another shot. But uh I think I mentioned this last time, maybe I didn't. Uh because I'm doing the same thing as you, Brandon. I'm going alphabetically through my movies, uh, my VHS. But I did re rewatch Arachnophobia recently after not Jeff watching Daniels. it for a, a long time. And you know what? I don't I was like, damn, this movie holds up. It's actually like really good
2: uh remind me the exterminator is it played by john goodman
3: that is correct he's great yeah. in it too
2: yeah that's a good one so that movie has a scene that that gave me like a second glance at my popcorn for years yes so growing up in washington um i don't know if you see this that much at your place adam but i lived in a quite a drafty house um we didn't have windows uh so we would get wolf spiders all the time. You know, my mom would tell us, well, they're called wolf spiders because they travel in packs. If you see one, there's a second one around, you know, yeah. <laughs> you'd see these huge spiders just lumbering across the floor. Um, anyway, point is, is there's that scene in that movie where the spider comes down on the web and drops into the popcorn and the girl eats it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it, bites are in the mouth you know that fucked me up for years i'm not i'm not like arachnophobic or anything like that but always take a glance at what i'm eating which is good practice anyway otherwise it might end up like the hitcher
3: where you end, right you know you end you up eating finger.
2: some motherfucker's finger
3: fingy in the fries <laughs> you either get a spider in the, the corn or fingy in the fries man yeah, that sounds like... Nobody a, wants uh, either one of
1: those.
2: An old, olden-day Midwestern colloquialism.
1: <laughs> I, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen arachnophobia since I was like a little kid. That's
2: a good one. I feel like it's worth there's, no,
1: there's no chance that it doesn't rule.
3: Yeah, it's worth a, re- a rewatch. I would definitely recommend it.
2: So funny enough, I also have arachnophobia on VHS, but I don't have the cover for it. So it it's not in the it's not in the catalog. I put it at the end in the miscellaneous. So I will be watching it, but it's going to be out of place.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm, well, I'm just glad my-
2: to know that it's it, glad to know it still holds up.
3: Yeah, that's that that, that they did well. That's my choice, uh, John. Anything on 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 your menu?
1: Um, I'm not sure what else to say because I just never remember anything about my life anymore. It's a good yeah. way to be. But I will say that tonight, earlier tonight, my dad and I went to like a very isolated town, like about 10 miles like west of us and got barbecue at this brewery. And it was like a fucking phenomenal meal. Wow. <laughs> like it was like a perfect meal. We got exactly the right amount of food to eat. The, the barbecue was like fantastic. It was just a great, great outing. Nice. Yeah. Fun with dad. Fun with dad. Yeah. I, I. My dad lives down the street from me. Fun fact. Like my mom and dad live like four houses down from my wife and daughter and I. Nice. Uh, yeah. He just like stopped by, picked me up and we went and grabbed a bite. It was beautiful. Jeez. Well, that's
3: reassuring that you seem to get along with your parents because no living kidding. down the street with them would otherwise be hellish.
1: That That's like a <laughs> picture perfect life. You know what? It's it, so initially we we were looking in this town like uh, we live in Geneva, Illinois. We were looking in this town for our second home, my wife and I, um, because you know we wanted to be close to my parents. Because my mom basically had agreed from the time my daughter was born to be like our sole caretaker. Yeah. You know, but when we lived like twenty five miles away, that was a bit harder for her to like drive out there like every time we needed her to watch her, you know Mm -hmm. so we didn't anticipate being able to live four houses down but the idea was to move into that town you know um and miraculously one day my mom saw that a house down the street was like up for sale and my wife and i literally put an offer down like before it even hit the internet and yeah they, they agreed to sell it to us and we moved in it was awesome that's right good
2: deal uh Love it when off, a plan off, comes together yeah and off mic you were discussing how you have a uh a total kill room set up where no one can hear you scream so <laughs> you know that makes me wonder what you were really doing in this remote town 10 miles out outside of uh your town with 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 pops wonder <laughs> well, if I there was barbecue i wonder if there was disposing of uh of bodies, perhaps.
1: Well, I will say this. The painful part about this conversation is how much I wish that I was killing motherfuckers in my basement.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> because, hey, one can dream. The, one can always hope.
1: The, yeah. The, the unfortunate truth is that I am not. I live a very, very clean life, but it would be so, so awesome to just lure some fucking asshole into my basement and just rip his throat out. Mm. But you know what? that that never say never it's 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 definitely something that could happen the basement's perfect for it you know i've got my recording studio down there so it's like you know i i wouldn't mind having the body like just right there next time i record a record
2: it's like it's like uncle gentry used to say if you can
1: dream it you can do it
3: yeah dare to dream dare to dream my friend
1: oh i'm i'm liking this inspiration well I knew there was a reason I, I signed on to the laptop tonight.
2: Yeah. You know, murder and sleepwalk and daydreams, all of this ties really nicely into the theme of tonight's movie. It really does. Yeah. It sure uh, does. It so, sure does. So yeah, tonight's my movie. Uh, we, watch, we watched uh, Session 9, Brad, Adder, uh, Brad Anderson film. Um, I don't know. Have you, are you familiar with his films? Either one of you guys?
3: Um, Oh, I am. I mentioned that at the end of last episode, but I don't,
2: I didn't really realize how much shit he's done and continues to do. Um, you know, obviously we all have, I'm sure we've all seen the machinist. Um, he did Trans Siberian. Most more recently, he did a movie that was uh, out on Netflix called Devil in Ohio. It was pretty good. He did uh, a, super, a take on a superhero story called Peacemaker. He's um, kind of not not really all over the place like Brian De Palma, but when he specializes in these uh, cerebral psychological movies, I think that that's kind of his his wheelhouse. He's done a few of them, obviously. The Machinist was really good, um, if you're into that kind of thing. And Session 9 isn't far afield from that. I'd say this is a movie that <clears throat> it, it it really is best when you've watched it two or three times. Um, the basic synopsis is, uh, let's see, this one here on IMDb is pretty good, pretty brief uh, tensions rise within an asbestos cleaning crew as they work in an abandoned mental hospital with a horrific past that seems to be coming back. This movie was filmed yeah. uh, on site at Danvers State Hospital in Massachusetts.
3: Yeah, my synopsis was just, asbestos dudes be going crazy in the nut house. <laughs> in the nut house in the nut house
2: yeah so this movie's release date was uh September 14th of 2001 it had a budget of a uh, million and a half uh opening weekend 76,493 bucks so i'd say that's kind of a flopper uh gross worldwide was uh 1,612,259 and strangely enough, as we were kind of sitting here off air, um, I was kind of looking at how that number breaks down and the lion's share of the gross there was international. It was Spain, Spain brought in 1,234,000 of that, which I don't know, Spain, why Spain why Not anywhere <coughs> else, nowhere else is even mentioned. So kind of interesting. But it gets pretty good reviews. Um, I think that somewhere I read that it was the last movie shot on USA Pictures before they went defunct. So I think that they kind of just got lazy on the promotion about it. But um, overall, it gets decent reviews. Uh, I didn't look to see. Did you, did you check about our guys, Siskel and Ebert, what they had to say about it?
3: I mean, I didn't find any from them but I did find some I like negative reviews especially with like movies that I do enjoy because you know I'm trying to like wrap my mind around like all right, well am I an idiot or are these people the idiots (laughs) so there was a lot of reviews that basically stated that or there was a few I should say not a lot that somehow the characters were underwritten and one reviewer particularly said that uh, the uh, surprise ending is contrived and unconvincing. Huh. So,
1: I'm yeah. a, I'm a pretty lazy, like, just straight-to-Wikipedia guy. I'm not gonna lie. But I am noticing... I, I did pick out something interesting here. Bloody Disgusting, ranking it fifth in its list of 20 best horror films of the 2000s. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, I saw that, a, too.
1: A whole decade. Five, number five from, like, a fairly reputable horror source like that's that's pretty impressive yeah yeah Yeah, I mean I think overall
3: I think this movie especially as time has gone on has become more beloved you know it's definitely entered into the the vaulted echelons of of cult status so you know and I, I don't know I don't see the whole the characters are underwritten I, yeah, guess, I, don't, I don't But
2: I don't get that at all. I mean, the the, the movie has a certain pace to it, um, you know, and it's like a tension building thing, which makes sense because to elaborate a little bit on the uh, the plot, there, the suspicious abatement crew comes in, Danvers State Hospital. Like I said, it's shot on site. It's a job that they within the, the character's dialogue, they figure it should take three weeks to do, and they decide, no, no, we can do it in two. And then, yep. to to really win the job, Gordon, the the owner of this asbestos company, he kind of alludes to the fact that he needs this job. He's got a new baby, uh, just came into his life, and and tensions are high. He needs this job. So to outbid the other guys, he says, tell you what, I, we can do this in a week. We can do it in a week. Just give us the job. So right off the top, they're under a lot of pressure, the whole, the whole crew. And so with that, you kind of get this little vignettes of each person's story and their backstory and why there's tension there. <clears throat> and it's kind of slow for that regard, but... Underwritten.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna just say this early on since we're on the subject, because I was actually gonna save it for later. But like I don't know if underwritten is like the best way to describe it, but I I completely get what they're saying. I was it was one of the things I was gonna say tonight. Is that I don't think there's really room for them to be written anymore in this movie. But I also yeah. think that like they kind of shoot themselves in the foot by kind of like divulging like this somewhat interesting, rich backstories of each character, but they don't really go into it much more than that. Like the cast is kind of treated like the, – the, I'm sorry. The characters, in my opinion, are kind of treated like they would in a movie where you're not really supposed to know that much about the characters. But you do kind of know a little bit about the characters, so I I'm I'm just gonna say this right now I I I kind of agree with that criticism.
2: Well, okay, so I'm gonna I, I'd like to unpack that a little bit. I think I get what you're saying, but at the same time, the characters, though complex, it's the way that they're depicted. It's easy to understand their situation. Definitely, I mean. Gordon clearly is the most complex character going on here. And that's obviously by design uh, because you find out his unraveling through the week as the story goes on. But you know, you got Hank Hank is kind of the cocky asshole was once friends with Phil steals Phil's girlfriend. So there's clearly tension there. You don't really know what's going on with Phil in his private life, but he's obviously salty about that relationship.
1: And you kind of you kind of get the sense as the film goes on that there's way more Well, I'm gonna be honest, this was kind of like uh this this also didn't deliver. Because like I mean, I, I don't wanna like spoil I mean, I guess I I'm trying to I don't know how this is supposed to work here. Like, can I can I spoil like something else that happens later, like right now or no?
3: Well, I would say before we get too much into discussing the likes and dislikes, we need to move in to the good, the bad, and the questionable. Yeah, and Then they, yeah. you can break it down a little bit more, and then you can talk about like what's your uh, you can give your uh, your your roses and your thorns in that, John. Um, because I have a little bit of uh, disagreement on something that you just pointed out, uh, Brandon. But let's again let's save this for the meat of the of the show. How about that? Sounds good. some of this in the uh, preamble there, so we can move on to maybe some more specific things and there, kind of maybe unpack more of the the general thematic, overarching ideas in the movie as we go along. Uh, One thing I want to point out with the good is, uh, and I'm sure, Brandon, this is where you got this from, but Brandon, uh, you know, uh, your band just came out with a new record called Night People, and in the movie... You see that close up on that uh, that headline, yeah. Night people, they're on the yeah. collage on the wall.
2: Yeah, and there's all the dead bodies underneath it and the coffins.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Totally. Actually, because you said that, I will point out that um, our previous two albums, I got inspiration for um, from this same movie. Right before the, they go into that room, into that ward. Gordon goes what or maybe it's Phil he goes what what is this and the guy goes oh these are called seclusion's which is where they isolate you know patients for reflecting upon their lives so
1: creepy uh, as fuck dude
2: yeah so our our uh, second LP is called seclusion's and then our third is called night people uh, damn but, i yeah. had no
1: idea that your your band was so in like like pulled so much from this movie. That's pretty. (laughs) This movie is,
2: I just, I really like this movie. I enjoy I
1: love hearing about stuff like that.
2: Yeah. I enjoy a lot about this movie. So anyway, go on, Adam. I just, uh, no, I I, I fired off.
3: I was going to say, I fired off one, John, why don't you fire off a good?
1: Um, well, I will say the, the, the way that the set, this movie gets set up is, is, is great because you can't go wrong when you're, just immediately in a mental a mental abandoned mental hospital you know like that that is like i it reminded me immediately of of night shift the short story by steve stephen king yeah one one of my faves um just and you know i kind of anticipated this movie being a lot like that that short story and it really wasn't um but yeah right away i was like I was interested in it and excited just because of the way it's, it's the setting that right. presents itself, you know? Yeah. And like, there's like a, just a darkness even to that first conversation that Phil and, and Gordy have. Right. Like in the van, you know, Yeah, like, these are, these are two miserable fucking people, you know?
2: Yeah. Like, well, and that kind of plays into my first good on my list too. Um, I, I really, I don't know if you guys recall, I've watched this movie countless times. So I mean, it's one where I can just recite it, but, um, it opens with just a fucked up sound. It sounds like an EKG monitor or something going. And there's that sequence of that, uh, looking down the hallway at that wheelchair in the asylum. Yeah. It's upside down and it flips right side up. And then it, it immediately cuts from that to the radio being really loud or the in the fo- the the focus of the audio and you can hear Phil talking in the background it's like yep you know it's kind of like it, it reminds me of when you're w- really fucking tired and you're waking up someone's talking to you but you just it's not quite there yet
1: and I got major 7 vibes from the way that that started
2: Totally um, yeah you know
1: how the, you know how the movie 7 starts where there's those like I think they're playing like nine inch nails in the beginning, but it's like yeah. a weird like remix or something. Yep. And then it like,
2: shows him making the notebook and all this yep, stuff.
1: Yep. And there's like fucked up like screeching sounds or whatever that is. And then um you kind of like immediately see Detective Somerset like in that apartment, you know? Yeah. Which kind of like just the the opening shot of, of session nine, similar, you know, with like the the hallway.
2: Yeah, there's a a
1: very similar vibe to the way it started. Totally.
2: There's a, there's a certain amount of grime to this scene, which, you know, kind of comes into the trivia, but it being shot on set, they really didn't have to do much set dressing. I mean, the place was very much what it is in the movie. It's abandoned, fucked up, just deteriorated beyond usability, totally dangerous. Um, you know, but with being a movie that, that plots a al- lot, plots along like it does the little, uh, indicators of, of something being amiss with the characters is right from that first scene where it's Phil's talking is way in the background. You can see Gordon kind of looks like he's sleeping in the driver's seat. And then it kind of fades in. He goes, Gordy. You look tired you need you need some rest and then it starts coming in like into focus and r- right from that, you know that there's just something not really right with Gordon's relationship with Phil and just Gordon's relationship with himself. and yeah. uh, I appreciate that a lot. so that's maybe
1: that's even some maybe even some foreshadowing to Gordon's relationship with essentially reality.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Not
1: just with himself or Phil, but just like in general, like his connection to reality around him is obviously like revealed to not be intact.
2: Yeah. There's something askew. And, um, I appreciate that right from the beginning. Um, it, it grabs my attention, albeit being a slow movie. It, it still has these little elements that come along at, at the best time to, to grab my attention.
3: Yeah, um basically everything you guys just said I I also have on my list and I just kind of wanted to like add my own little yeah. two cents to each of those. Yeah, I love any plot based around a closed mental asylum. And speaking of when you mentioned Stephen King, and this has been written about and analyzed with this movie before. This movie is clearly indebted to The Shining. Yeah, in a lot of ways. In terms of the the haunted building being possessed or whatever, and then eventually controlling a man that is already susceptible to a breakdown, essentially being like you know an open vessel essentially for whatever a demonic force or uh, an evil spirit. Um, yeah, that personalities. Right, multiple personalities. Exactly. Um. What I put so there's a phrase that you guys may have heard of. It's it's a very pretentious film phrase, but I want to talk about the wheelchair. But like that's a mise en scène, which is basically you know when you focus on a particular like just shot in a film that in itself says so much just right. by you know you know looking at it. Essentially, it's not even necessarily the action involved, but it's just like if you took it as a photograph and took it outside of the film, and you could analyze that, you know, unto itself. So, yeah, that wheelchair is great. The one thing that I wanted to add all this, to all this, and Ran and I, we've talked about this extensively at this point, is here is an example to me of one of the dwindling examples of showcasing a realistic portrayal of working-class people in cinema. Yeah. Which, you know as we've yeah, talked about, it happens less and less. <laughs> right. Working class
2: people. I mean, to the, to the, to the credit of the characters, I feel like I've worked with these guys or guys just like this, including Jeff, the total doofus.
3: Absolutely. Know?
2: I mean, they, they're, they're uh, relatable people. They've got kind of relatable issues. Um, and that's appealing when you can go, okay, I I can, I can go along with this story because I know these guys.
3: Yeah. Well, and that was the thing with me. The last time I watched this was when I was in the throes of that job where I was working in crawl spaces. (laughs) So I just totally identified with these guys having this just shit job that was completely dangerous you know, and you'd have to suit up in your hazmat outfits and everything, and there's right. always like th- the concern that if you weren't completely using your PPE, you're gonna like inhale some like toxic fucking shit. Right. So when I watched this last, time, I was like, oh, well, this is my life right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what's um, funny, you guys? I I don't I don't work. I've never worked with people like this or any type of job like this. And right. I seriously have the same thought as both of you. <laughs> yeah,
3: because I mean, even if you don't,
1: you
3: don't have to work with people like that, but like, like you don't have to have a blue collar job, but everybody has these people, whether you work in white collar or service or blue collar or whatever, there's always going to be these archetypes that are represented in this, in this movie. But
1: And I think that the way that the characters come across, like it's just even to somebody that hasn't, doesn't have a direct reference like you i mean you know i've seen enough movies to know like when characters are portrayed realistically and yeah it's like i just got a sense you know like it like it came across like a realistic portrayal of what i as the viewer um, am knowing that these characters are supposed to be represented right right? yeah so you
2: know i i kind of i kind of touched on this earlier but just for anybody listening who who hasn't watched the movie, I mean, you've got let's see, what is it? One, two. You got five guys, right? Five guys total. You got Mike, Phil, Gordon, Jeff, and Henry. And all these guys got their own bullshit going on. Uh, you know, Phil and Henry, their connection is 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 they are tethered together because. Uh, Henry stole Phil's girl or whatever. So there's salty bitterness about that, but they're both professionals. They can work together. Yep. But they're in a tense situation and they're just constantly shit talking about that. So that raises the pressure. Then you've got Mike. Mike is, he's a asbestos dude, but he's kind of fallen back on this after failing the, the bar test or whatever to become an attorney his father's an attorney so he's got this hanging over him you know that it haunts him he could be doing something way more with himself but he's not he's shucking fiber with these chumps <laughs> then to add more pressure you've got jeff who's gordon's i don't know what nephew
3: nephew he's his uh, nephew yeah. yeah
2: and he's just like a total rookie doesn't know shit from piss So that adds its own tension. Not to mention, he's got a little phobia with the dark, and they're in an abandoned asylum. Um, And then you got Jeff, the band daddy, or Gordon, excuse me, the band daddy of them all, which I can relate to Gordon just from being the band dad in my bands. Like, (laughs) the dude's got more problems than anybody, you know, or any of his crew put together but he just comes to work just like everybody else tries to keep it all in line, keep it all together, but he needs this more than any of them. So yeah. the pressure's definitely on. And, uh, I don't it's know, kind it, of
1: like the classic, like, what the fuck are you bitching about scenario? Exactly. Totally. You know? Like if you, if you even knew
2: a, a percentage of the shit that I've got to deal with, you wouldn't even be talking.
1: Right. right. And I'm, I'm going to say something very pretentious real quick. Just the shot of him sitting in like on the the very tail end of the van during lunch. Yeah. Where like all these guys are like hashing out their bullshit and he's just kind of sitting there. Just like that shot, I think was intentional to show his like clear experience in like misery totally but like well, unwillingness to make it this situation about himself
2: yeah and I think that's one of the reasons I identify so much with this movie because they can the 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 comes into my good as well the cinematography the the shots that they choose to put into the movie once we get into the trivia you know we'll talk about what was taken out of the movie but It's like what you were talking about, Adam, where there's just a shot of a wheelchair. You know, they do that a lot through this movie. They did that a lot in another movie, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they just (laughs) show clocks with nails in them hanging from a tree, a dirty, ripped up tent. There's no context um, on its face about it, but it just points out the destitution, you know. This yeah. movie does that a lot. Just a what when, when uh, Mike is talking about the Patricia Willard case, it kind of just goes off and shows a rusty old clock, and kind of just shoots sh- some 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 shots over top of his monologue. That kind of stuff I means a lot to me.
1: Um, it, it's cool when it's cool when when people rely on non inanimate objects as as like. Some type of storytelling, yeah. Which, which I, it almost reminds me. I mean, it didn't remind me of this, of this at the time, but as we're talking about it, it almost reminds me of the last six shots of Halloween, right? Where it's like the movie basically ends with like these like landscapes in the movie, yeah. You know, yeah. like it does. It doesn't end with like a person like fading away or a person walking away or any of that shit. It it literally ends with like just various scenes like settings of the movie without people in them.
2: Right. Yeah. I I take so much away from scenes like the one you're talking about where Gordon's just sitting alone at the end of the van eating Mm -hmm. lunch, where he goes to the cemetery and he's talking on his phone to his wife. And then when he gets off just his, that gaze of vacancy, you know, it comes along with a character who's dealing with a lot of shit. He's yep. not going to express it to anyone because he knows that's not going to change anything. He's just taking it all in and assessing what he's going to do next.
1: And it's also very important that he agreed to this absurd timeline to finish this job because he's also, that's also just one more thing that's keeping him from like exploding his shit onto all of these people that are essentially relying on him to get this job done.
2: Yeah. You know, and that kind of, that's going to work its way into my questionable as well as why he took the job. Um, but moving on from that um I mean I could just I could talk for days the good about this but you know like the pacing so I mentioned my love with that first scene and Phil's fading in dialogue and then not 20 minutes into the movie when they're talking to the <clears throat> essentially the groundskeeper the guy who's selling them the job you get that shot again where it's just it's like a deja vu. You can see it in Gordon's face without him saying anything. That long gaze down the hallway, and he sees that he sees that wheelchair. And then that first subliminal mm-hmm. voice, hello, Gordon. Yeah, it comes yeah. along at the right time to re- reignite my interest in what in the story, you know. And they and, and Anderson sticks those little bits. In ah, uh, just a really great really great timing, really good pacing with the with the uh the creep factor, so can't say enough about it, but I'm gonna stop talking about it, otherwise this will end up being really long,
3: <laughs> yeah, this movie is like a really fine example of the slow burn mm-hmm, so.
2: Yeah, uh I, I I really enjoy the meandering score, that meandering piano music. It's uh from a musical perspective, you know, it just adds so much tension to the scenes that it never has this resolution to it. It just keeps ascending in a strange <laughs> kind of
1: lumbering way. Um so you, like like Scott Walker or some shit. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah i was going to talk about the the soundtrack also just how some parts of it almost has to me what what sounds like a a traditional japanese music quality you can almost hear like the plucking of like you know traditional japanese stringed instruments in some spots but also the sound design in general is great in this movie, like you were saying with all those layers, those subtle layers of things going on. One specific part where I love that happening with the scene is there's the montage towards the end where the workers are all scattering throughout the asylum. And then you hear like the voice of Simon talking to the doctor. Yeah. That, that dialogue is happening. And then you hear all this other kind of like really just, you know, insane sound design happening under it, like screaming and you know right. Right. creepy, eerie sounds all just layered and textured together.
1: The 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 simultaneous ugliness and beauty of a psychological horror film is that yeah. it pulls so much from things that you just I mean, unless you're living under a fucking rock, you know have really happened. Like Patients yeah. have multiple personalities. Like, holy shit. Like, there is nothing more frightening than someone that is that far gone. Right. You know? Yeah. And like, when that's like, like I said, like, that's like what is so successful about a good psychological horror movie is like its ability to just like tap into – the darkest realities that it's not fantasy anymore. Like this is just like straight up realism. Like the world is fucked and here's a movie about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I, I liked that uh, very much. I think that's akin to how I write music or enjoy music as well. I more so enjoy music and movies, films that they don't have this overarching moral or something. Really, it just drops you right into the middle of the day in the life of some fringe person or some situation that's happening to someone. And it doesn't try and make these big, broad stroke solutions with the story or anything like that. There really is no solution to this movie. There's not even a question. Um, As far as that goes, it's just these are these characters that are under all kinds of tension. And this is what happens to people in that situation. Sometimes to your point about bringing in reality, um, the whole, the whole situation about people coming back to these asylums, um, you know, that that's very much rooted in truth too. And uh, I don't know the whole, the whole situation is, (laughs) is really awesome about this movie to, to, To set it up for just being a fucking creep show, creep fest, and and I think you're you're right, Adam. That is very much pulling from uh, something like The Shining. You know, The Shining. You get to the end of it and you see the you see the zoom in on the the ball in 1921 or whatever, and Jack is there, and you go, Well, wait a minute. Was he always there? What what's fucking what's going on here? yeah that's, that's how i felt the first probably four times i watched this movie you know yeah I feel and, like,
3: and, go uh, ahead john no oh, you go
1: ahead i was just gonna say like the difference between a movie like this and a, a movie like nightmare on elm street for example which in some ways, in like a very, very broad way, is somewhat of a psychological horror movie because of the fact that like it was intended to like terrorize people from going to sleep. Right. It's cerebral. Cerebral terrorism. Uh, Right. But the difference between it is that like the realism really stops immediately. Like, yep, people go to sleep and have nightmares.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, okay. That's like a pretty – a pretty lazy reality to like touch on. Right. But the difference between like that and like a movie like this or the shining is that like, okay, here's a very boring, but real thing that you have to like dig a little deeper to realize like people do like a guy taking care of a hotel for a season. right? Right. Or an asbestos crew going in to clean up an old mental hospital. Like, like that's that puts a little bit more effort. No, I'm not knocking nightmare because it's obviously one of my favorites, but you know, like you do have to put a little more effort into creating a relatable scenario that turns into just a night, like a total nightmare than just like, Oh, well people go to sleep and have nightmares. Like this is like a, a bit more general and like something you wouldn't associate with horror. And that's where it stems from. So that's, awesome about it in my opinion yeah
2: I mean that's one of the reasons that I I uh, glom onto this movie I really appreciate this movie I appreciate movies like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Straw Dogs or something like that because this is something that could happen in someone's life just remove Danvers State Hospital for a minute and just think about pressure and stress put on people you know, high stress situations and that that final line in the movie where the doctor says, and Simon, where do you live? And Simon says, Simon, aka Mary Hobbs says, I live in the weak in the wounded, Doc. I mean, that's
1: yeah, everyone that
2: was, has been there.
1: That was so fucking a killer way to end that movie.
2: Yeah, that that's that's my My final good is Simon's monologue. That, you know, whole bit where Simon is finally revealed in the ninth session. The last 20 minutes of the movie, I just, is a total knockout to me. And I'll just appreciate it. I'll
1: just say this to kind of expand on that. Like, all three of us being like people that listen to like punk and hardcore and metal, which basically like, Speaks to the 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 weak and the wounded.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like yeah,
1: like just that last line, kind of like directly correlated with like every basic reason that I relate to this fucked up music. You yeah. know what I mean?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Kind of. Yeah, for me.
3: sure. Yeah, no, it's it was a great way to cap this movie with that. Uh, <clears throat> what I wanted to kind of build upon was well, another reference that I feel is pretty strong with this movie that I picked up on is I feel like this is also akin to a movie like the thing where you have the paranoia of a group of guys all taking hold to the point where everybody and anybody in this could be the enemy. They could be the perpetrator uh, or the villain. And, and there's a point where you're, you're not sure who it could be, you know? So, yeah, Yeah, well,
2: go ahead. Sorry.
3: I was just going to say, there's that pointing of, it's like the, well, there's either the Spider-Man meme you can think of, or there's just, you know, the the classic picture of all the guys with like the shotguns all in a circle pointed at each other. Right. The Mexican standoff sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because there's, there's clearly a point in this movie where you are led to believe that maybe Phil is the, is the one responsible here. Definitely. Yeah. You know, and all, all things are kind of pointing to Phil and his strange behavior. He's talking to these guys out at the generator, you know, he finds the coin, he's flipping the coin. And then you see Hank has the coin that he dropped and everything. And so they, they lead you in that direction maybe. And, you know, for me, the first time watching it, I I definitely didn't see coming how, how the final act? I mean, I'm going okay. Yeah, so Phil's the one, you know. David Caruso, I knew he was kind of like a main actor. I could see, yeah, he could play the bad guy for sure. Um, but it doesn't end up that way, as we know.
1: <laughs> yeah, All I right. was going to touch on that earlier when I was saying, like, you know, should I should I spoil what happens now or not? But um, I also was like totally not expecting that, which. You know, it's good for there to be a twist, obviously. Obviously, like that's – everybody loves a twist. Nobody – whoever doesn't like a twist is lying. Right. Right? It's fun. It's enjoyable. But yeah, they, they allude – I think that was absolutely intentional. You're supposed to think that Phil is this like fucked up guy that's going to screw everybody over in the yeah. end. You know? He,
2: yeah, he's kind of the red herring. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: But you really, uh, you, yeah, you're really not led to believe for one second that he's not going to be like the asshole, right? You know, so yeah, and I, I,
2: so there's kind of like I said, it's, it's hard to, um, divorce this part of the good from the trivia. But in the trivia, you know, in the, if you watch this movie with the deleted scenes included, I uh, have the DVD that has the movie fully intact, um, there is a subplot going on where there's a homeless woman running around the hospital who, who was a part of the hospital at one time. And so they decided to cut that out to not confuse the plot. Um, but they salvaged the rest of the scenes with taking that out. So, a nod to the uh, editors and the directorial uh, direction that that went when they decided to ditch that whole element of the movie, that all of the scenes that they left in still made sense with this major part of the plot taken out of it. You know, that I'm sure that came along as just a, hey, after seeing this, we got to kind of figure out some kind of direction to go here. And that's probably a hard thing to just chop out. Um, But like the scenes, like when Mike's walking through the gymnasium in the original cut, that scene is shot from the perspective of the woman who's in the hospital as well, watching him walk through, you know, this kind of thing. So omitting that they were still able to make the movie um, cohesive which I think is a nod towards the uh, overall direction of the movie.
1: Yeah, and just just knowing that, I'm glad they did. Me too. you know me too, because you
2: know, I don't think you need to lean into, oh, people come back to the hospital because they don't know anything else any more than just explaining that, you know, as they did earlier in the movie on the lunch break or whatever
1: absolutely i think that like uh, things like that are definitely better less better left you know sh- like shown in a way that that i'm, <laughs> I'm blank like they're they're telling you that it happened but they're not showing it to you as part of the story you know right yeah Th- that's important because you know leave leave things up to the the viewer's imagination let something kind of like fuck with the viewer for a while You know,
2: yeah, and I I think that that plays into kind of what we talked about at the at the onset with that review about the characters being underwritten. You know, you can say a lot with just a few strokes, and there's a specific scene, there's a monologue going on, and you kind of get a montage snapshot of it of some of the characters' lives. You see Hank who stole Phil's girlfriend. He's just sitting in front of the TV, like drinking a beer or something. And you can see just yelling at him. I mean, it's all silent because there's a monologue going. And then you see Gordon outside of his house with the rain running down his van window. And he's just looking at his house with that meandering piano going on. You see Phil at the bar, just tossing him back, trying to deal with his shit, you know, I don't need a lot of backstory for these characters. I I know where they're coming from. Like I said, it helps because I feel like I know these guys. I feel like I've worked with guys just like this. And so they're written in such a way that I think that you can get, you can get who they are. You can get what they're about without really doing a deep dive into their, you know, for the fear of overwriting the character, um, I think that it was done just right. I mean, I, I can't you know, really ask for more of the backstory, you know.
1: The more that you that you kind of like go into that, the more it puts me sort of on the fence about it. You know, like I definitely see what you're saying and I think I see what you're saying more than I see what the, the others are saying, you yeah. know. Um, but I still kind of feel like the reason that that criticism makes sense to me is because – there's something a little bit unsuccessful about it, in my opinion, because of the way that you have this like group of people and they I think that maybe they should have said even less about the backstory, to be honest, um, in order to keep that going with if you're not gonna like dive dive into it a little bit further. Um, like I said, i'm I'm kind of leaning more towards your perspective at this point.
2: I see. So you're so you are it's it's at that apex that if they that they said it as much as they did, you want a little more.
1: Right. And And if they would have said
2: a little less then you, you wouldn't think that way, maybe.
1: Right. And I think that if they said a little less, but sort of hinted at it without necessarily telling you so much, it could have had the same effect. And then they would have gotten away with going the whole rest of the movie without diving into it. So really it's a matter of just like, you know, how close you want to get to like blowing your load all over someone's <laughs> face, you know? So <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, there's definitely a few perspectives. But like I said, I think that you did a pretty good job of like defending this way of working with this movie. And I, I, I'm going to be willing to admit I'm more so leaning towards your perspective.
3: He's
2: leaning in my camp. What do you say, big dog? Adam, you got any well, I'm gonna,
3: way in? I'm going to say we're getting into the hour mark here, so I'm going to give uh some rapid-fire goods, and then I think we need to move into the other parts of the, uh, of the, uh, the pod. What do you think? Hit, hit me, Daddy. Rapid-fire goods. Okay. I love Hank's dialogue. He's pretty witty uh, <laughs> in general. Uh, this is such a Boston, Massachusetts movie. Uh, David Caruso always kind of plays the same character, and I love it. So that's cool. Uh, I love that hallway scene where Jeff is running down, and the lights just progressively go out as he's running out, and he's just like terrified and freaking out. Now they just like all just kind of burn out as he's as he's running. Yeah. Um, also, this is a good slash. I'm in disagreement with a comment you made earlier. I don't think Gordy is the most complex character. I think Mike is the most complex character.
2: Okay. Unpack am in it. my
3: opinion. Give it to well, me. Well, because he's like that smart guy that you work with at those shitty fucking blue collar jobs that, you know, he's kind of slumming it. And he clearly has like an encyclopedic brain to retain all this knowledge. And he has gone off on his own to explore the areas in the institution to kind of delve more into its sordid history for whatever, like, morbid reasons that he has. I think that Gordy is definitely a very interesting character and a very flawed, obviously, um, what is it, tragic character. But I think Mike is the more complex character, in my opinion. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Mike has a quality to him. It, it, it's kind of said, you know, your dad's the attorney, your dad's the attorney of the state or whatever. Uh, it, it shows that he is very intelligent, but he doesn't think too highly of himself. Yeah. So that does add a complexity to him.
1: Yeah. So that he, was definitely, it. he definitely has this like morbid fascination with like fucked up shit too. And it's like, He's like the guy that like you go on a job with somebody and he's like the first guy to say something really weird. And everybody's like, all right, that guy's fucking weird. <laughs>
3: <laughs> My kind of guy. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, if you guys had any more uh, rapid fire goods, uh, shuttle them off. If not, let's move into the bad.
1: I want to say one more. One more good. Okay. The scene. I mean, all of the scenes where they're just replaying the tapes you know with uh what's it mary hobbs or whatever yeah, yeah. um is just like so terrifying and you need to be clever to 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 terrify your viewer that way and yeah, so i agreed. just give, give them props for the way that that was done like i was watching that and i was just like I, I don't get scared at movies and i wasn't scared at this movie but i was also like genuinely creeped out just by the whole multi- multiple personality shit like man
2: yeah yeah it can come off really corny a lot of times it's easy to yep. it's easy to fuck up and i'm glad there was no visual element to it like it wasn't like video of her interview right, right. it was just the definitely, audio
1: definitely not some like james Wan fucking conjuring bullshit you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh, yeah and props you to, know uh, props to uh session nine on that one sure yeah, I would say, you know, the whole thing with like, multiple
3: personalities and schizophrenics and it being terrifying is there's a reason why in prehistoric, into medieval, and even, you know, Victorian era times, those sort of conditions were associated with possession and demonism, essentially. Yep. So, yeah. Right on. Brandon? Uh, don't ask me
2: because I'll just keep going on and on.
3: Yeah. Okay. We're going to cut you off. We're pinching <laughs> it off here. Uh, let's move into the bad. I don't really have a lot of bad. It's more just, uh, I don't know. Little things. Hank's flavor saver. little soul patch there. <laughs> this is coming yeah. from a guy that had one of those at one point when I was in my uh, late teens, I had a little, little, little patch.
2: Yeah. But. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Uh, Hank is sort of, I think that Hank comes off as he is the detestable character. And I think that that kind of plays along to the look, that bad boy. Yeah, of course. So I think that it's intentional, but it's never good.
3: The thing (laughs) is, I'm going to reprise this and contradict myself later on but I'm going to also put it in the bad. Okay. All right. Okay. um, The other bad I wanted to have, and I don't really have anything else is just shitty high risk grunt work. Just work (laughs) in general. Fuck work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. High risk, uh, low, low, low reward, diminishing returns for sure.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Like I was going to say 10 grand bonus for a week's worth of fucking split uh, five ways. Yeah, split five ways excavating asbestos out of a creepy ass fucking asylum. No, thank you. Not worth it.
1: Wait a second. Time out. Are we certain that it was split five ways? I always thought that it was ten grand a piece. Well, you
2: know, but when when Phil mentions the offer, yeah, they Gordon made the contract with the city, ten grand bonus, and he goes, Ten grand each. And then Phil goes, Hey, if if you got a problem, I'll take you to the airport right now.
1: Yes, I do remember that. I was a little confused by that because I was like, "Is he going to answer the question or not?"
2: Yeah, high risk, low reward for sure. It's just like Hank said, "This shit grows in you," oh, like a, it's like like wrapping around a pearl. I mean, that whole bit when he's talking about asbestos in your lungs and shit—that the way he describes it, so good. And then before you know it, bang—you're drowning your own lung fluid. Yeah. yeah. Bleak. Bleak. Bleak for sure.
1: Working class misery.
2: <laughs> working class, a working man's dead.
3: <laughs> okay,
1: do you guys got any bads?
2: Uh, you want to kick it off or you want me to? I mine's pretty short as well.
1: It, I'm going to say something that I hope doesn't infuriate either of you. All right, well I just hope it
2: does. just just save it. Let me ra- wrap off mine. And then, uh, this is coming from the guy who speaks, you know, high, high praise of his movie. So let me just yes. roll through this and then you can infuriate me to the point where I, I'm out of here.
1: It might not affect you at all because I, it, it, it just, Adam said something earlier that I think it might bother him. But anyway, go on.
2: Okay. All right. So here's my badge. You ready? Uh, I, I fucking cannot stand the reverb effect they put on Gordon's wife, Wendy's voice when she's talking. <laughs> oh, Gordon, what? Roses, they're lovely. There's like this, <laughs> this, I know from doing audio shit that there's this like plate, small room reverb that they used for that. And I just, I think it's a little bit cheap and I fucking hate it.
1: It makes you um, glad that he, that he fucking killed her and the baby, huh?
2: <laughs> <But> yeah, got <laughs> your ass. That's what you get. That's what you get for using some shit reverb. <laughs> so that um, Jeff's love lunchtime shit talking, it bothers me not so much because I think it's bad in the movie. I think it bothers me because it's too real to stupid people. When he's... <sighs> He's trying He's trying to be one of the guys. What are you, a lobotomy case? And then he starts, lobotomy, <laughs> acting like a fucking doofus. Uh, and then shit, is coming out of his mouth, which is disgusting to me. Um, so, yeah, can't stand that. Uh, also, Adam, you made a comment about me being a germaphobe this weekend, which I don't think I am, but I do... <laughs> I do point out um, totally unnecessary risks. And Mike takes a lot of them. Mike, in, the, in one of the scenes when he is listening to the sessions, it's like on a lunch break, he breaks away from the group. He puts his pen in his mouth when he's listening to the session. I mean, his dirty ass fucking turd stick it's been in and out of his hand, probably on the, probably on the floor, puts it in his mouth. What is he thinking? Furthermore,
1: yeah, I'm going to fucking throw up right now. Yeah. Tell me about uh, it. I, you know what? I, I might be the biggest germaphobe out of all three of us, but what you're saying, I completely understand.
2: Okay. Well, while you're thinking about that, think about this. Not 15 minutes later, they're at a lunch scene and when he's explaining during Mike's shit or Jeff's shit talk session, he cuts him off with uh, describing a lobotomy, how a lobotomy is done. You know, a little fun fact. He takes his own chopstick that he's eating with and puts it up to Jeff's eye on his skin in his like eye juice hole. And then we can only assume he continues eating lunch with those same chopsticks. (laughs) Fucking foul! Yeah. What is wrong with this guy? Um, and then the only other thing kind of falls into the same sort of, I think it was unnecessary to get the point across was um, when Simon's monologue is going on, there's just these like sort of corny stock sound effects going on some, you know, Mary fell on her doll. Clearly it's like a glass doll because it cuts her up but there's this broken doll sound and there's some crying little screams in the background behind the monologue. I think it was totally unnecessary. It kind of takes me out of it and um, it pisses me off, but that's it. That's all I got real minutia.
3: Okay, John,
1: let's, let's hear it, buddy. All right, dudes, I've got one, <laughs> I've got two bads, but, um, I've got three bads. The third one I'm going to save for the questionable. Okay. Okay. right. Okay. First one that I'll just get out of the way. I fucking hate David Caruso. Yeah. Like, like I'm not, I'm not even like, I'm not even messing with either of you on this one. Like that guy sucks at acting. He fucking left NYPD Blue to do some fucking shitty-ass movie in the 90s. Did, fuck that guy. Like, fuck <laughs> his acting, fuck his character. David Caruso sucks, and I wish he was here right now so I could just be like, dude, you suck. You know, <laughs> the, only,
2: uh, the only thing that I wish David Caruso would have done or not done, it's not even David Caruso. Do you know his first movie was Rambo? first blood
1: yep yep I, I i did know that because that's probably one of the only roles that he doesn't suck in because he's barely
2: in it it's just a bit part but yeah but he, he his, does better in that little part yeah, than anything yeah else. but this would this would you would appreciate this if it were to be an alternative universe so in the book his character he plays in rambo gets gutted In the, in right there in the, in the prison, in the movie, it doesn't happen, but that is the same character. So just imagine D Caruso just getting totally fucking filleted open. And that might, that might do you a little service. I
1: I hope that happens to him in real life this weekend. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, (laughs) once again, if you could dream it, you can do it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Listen, you guys, I got to (laughs) go. It's something I need to take care of. (laughs) Um, But yeah, (laughs) fuck David Crusoe. guy sucks. I don't even, whenever I hear his name even mentioned, I'm like, you know, that guy sucks. Right. But anyway, other thing, I just did not like Jeff's character. I know that he, he has a role. I know that they need somebody to be the doofus, but I don't think we need like somebody from fucking Beavis and Butthead in this movie. I, I just, we don't. And it just, I could have done without him. It, well, it, it, it it was a, it was a, an unnecessary distraction for me. Mm. And that's, that's coming someone from somebody that's literally wearing a Tommy boy t-shirt right now. So yeah. I'm, I'm not against silly characters, you know, but I am, I think I'm against this character in this movie.
2: I see. Yeah. I mean, from coming from a uh, labor kind of background, as far as work goes, uh, there's always that type of Garth Bonehead that is just a broom pusher. But he is sure. particularly insufferable. Uh, I will agree with you.
1: Yeah, I think that in any type of movie, like when it comes to writing characters, you have to only indulge in like the ridiculousness of a character as much as it fits the rest of the vibe of the movie. Yeah. And right. I think that in this one, they fall short. I
2: see.
3: Well, I, I want to backpedal a little bit here. When I said that I like David Caruso, it's because he's so fucking one note.
1: I mean, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> oh, but there's okay. like, <laughs> yeah. See, I'm already getting riled up. Go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like, like I'm not
3: defending this guy at all. Yeah, fuck him. But <laughs> I'm just like, whatever. He's a one note Johnny, and sure, throw him in there. But I did want to say also with the Jeff dude, I. <laughs> have either one of you guys seen welcome to the dollhouse no nope okay i will forever associate that actor um fucking what's his name uh Bre- brendan
2: sexton
3: the third the third we will always associate brendan sexton the third with this character and welcome to the dollhouse and if you haven't seen it, then obviously you won't know what I'm talking about. But now, for those of you that are listening to this, you will know what I'm talking about. Is this pre-Session 9 or post? Yes, it's pre. This was in the uh, early, mid-90s, I guess. <clears throat> so, anyways.
2: Yeah, I guess um, this Holy also shit. falls into the trivia. But uh, Brad Anderson specifically wrote Jeff's character with Brendan Sexton third in mind.
0: Yeah.
1: You know what? Oh, I'm just sure? gonna I'm just gonna throw this out there. I'm looking him up right now, and I knew I fucking recognized this, this douche from somewhere. He's Empire Records. Empire Records.
3: Yep. He's also he plays the same dickhead in Empire Records pretty much as he does in Welcome to yeah, the Dollhouse.
1: He does. Yeah. yeah oh, for I sure. thought you were saying Session Nine, but yeah, okay.
3: Yeah. In- well, in that one too, he kind of he kind of got typecast there as being this kind of just like.
1: Uh,
3: you yeah, know, I like, just... I
1: like him in Empire Records.
3: Yeah, I hate that movie. <laughs> All
1: right, it yeah, does suck.
3: That movie sucks. Okay, so you wanted to reserve one of your other bads for the questionable. So
1: why don't you just go ahead and hand it off there, my man? Alrighty. Yeah, this is uh, this is something that was essentially disputed already, and I I want to say that I I see where the dispute is coming from, but. Even with Mike's interest in the fucked up shit, like his obvious fascination, are we seriously led to believe that somebody that is working with a crew to meet a deadline that is, you know, dedicated and trusted by these guys to be part of this crew? Are we seriously led to believe that he's just going to veer off and fucking not only that, like not only like listen to these. These tapes or whatever and just basically fuck off from the job that he has to do worse arguably worse than than the bonehead rookie right not only that but could they not have come up with a more like a possibly clever more clever way to introduce these session tapes to the movie besides (laughs) this like that's that's my it's like kind of bad to me but it's also just questionable yeah so i
2: yeah go ahead go ahead
1: i was gonna say i do have some comments on that
3: because i was gonna say that yes that is what's funny about this is it's immediately apparent that like these guys do not have the gumption at all to get this job done even in three weeks so that was that's pretty funny right off the bat they're all they're right off the bat farting the fuck around So,
1: did you guys guys get that vibe too? Just like not even from anything specific happening, but just the whole movie, it just seemed like nobody was hustling at all.
3: No hustle. Yeah. No hustle whatsoever.
1: It kind of gave me anxiety. I was like, are they going to get to work? (laughs)
3: Right. No, I thought the same thing.
1: Well,
2: well, well, and there's another scene. It's the scene where um, Gordon admits to hitting Wendy to. You know, near the end is probably like the second act or whatever. Yeah. You can tell it's clearly the middle of the afternoon still, and they're begging off for the day. What the yeah. fuck? Like this job was barely attainable in two weeks, and now they cut that in half. Um, that
1: leads me. You yeah, to- guys think that maybe the, that maybe that in general was intentional to just kind of like give this aura of like stagnation. Like, well, throughout yes. The movie?
2: Well, yeah, I so think it was intentional. That, that kind of plays into a question of mine is, did Gordon take the job on to self implode? Because if you look at the timeline, he says, when, when they meet, when Phil and Gordon meet in the beginning in the first scene, that's Friday.
1: Yep. Because
2: he says, you know, Last Friday, I I, um, bought some roses and things and a bottle of wine to, to you know, as a celebration for taking the job, went home. And then all of Gordon's trouble began Friday night. So then Monday rolls around. Everything's already happened. And it it carries on. So do you think that there's a subliminal text to be to be um, kind of. Considered here that Gordon Took on something With unreasonable Unattainable um, um,
3: Benchmark or goal Yeah Yeah,
2: goal uh, Because he knew he was self imploding Therefore yeah the whole Murdered my wife she spilled Fucking You know boiling water on me and something just Snapped in me um, That was kind of premeditated like sub- yeah. subconsciously he was always going to do it.
3: Yeah, now, I definitely, definitely feel that.
1: Okay. It, even at the very least, even if it's not intentional for that to be the reality, I definitely think that it is intentional for the reader to possibly be open to come to their, their own conclusion. Right. With your, I said reader, I meant viewer. Yeah. But like, yeah. like, I think that the, the, this movie is left open to quite a few interpretations in that sense.
2: Right. Well, okay. Which is is great. So, so I digressed a little bit, but uh, my main, what I was going to lead off on is connected to you about Mike. My question
1: was, why didn't he just take the shit home? (laughs) I mean, he he wouldn't, he'd be able to. Because he had the equipment to listen to it there. No. Like maybe you didn't have a reel to reel at home. Well, I guess he could take the real to Take the with fuck it. take the fucking thing home.
2: You wouldn't have yeah. to worry about fucking off at work. You could listen to the whole thing on uninterrupted.
1: You know? So you're, you're essentially validating my, my questionable here where it's Absolutely. like Absolutely. Regardless of that, you know, they did they did unpack the fact that he's clearly got this like this possibility of being distracted by these types of fascinations right yeah he's a lawyer but but still but still i'm not buying the fact that that would override anybody's commitment to like working on a project like this you know with
2: well here's the thing if if the state just whoops left all of these evidence boxes in this fucking place (laughs) to be consumed by trespassers or whomever they clearly are not coming back for them no one's gonna miss them no one's gonna ever knew they were there just take the shit home mike and then you know rub your filthy fucking shit in your mouth at home where you're (laughs) not you're not gonna be a liability on the job
3: yeah i have I have an observation about that that I don't know, maybe I just didn't pay enough attention during the movie. But the thing is, this is the this is what closes that loophole. I think he's doing it after work hours. I think um, after the crew is done, he's hanging out and, and yeah, listening to one, it.
1: There's one point where, I mi- where they do make that clear that it is after work hours, yeah. but I feel like there's at least one or two other parts in the movie where he's clearly just veering off in the, the middle first, well, that's,
2: the Yeah, go ahead, Adam.
3: I was going to say,
1: that's because he probably goes after hours and
3: he's like, oh, he finds this treasure, and so he gets distracted from there on. He's like, I got to go, you know, steal away to my stash of, Creepy, morbid reel to reels. Right.
1: Well, but again, take the shit home. What is wrong <laughs> with you? I mean, I could be remembering it wrong, but the first time he listens to the tapes, I think, is when he. The power goes, goes out. Right.
2: When and he he's, okay. goes, yeah, because he plugs the shit back in. He has to do it because Jeff has nyctophobia. so he goes in the basement all irritated, plugs it in, and the light to the evidence room comes on, which is kind of weird because that suggests that it was on the whole time, you know. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, okay.
2: Yeah. So you got more questionable for me, big big dog.
1: Uh, I think well, I think say I think we
3: kind of already talked about this, but I was I said when I want to talk about you know the idea of the locale being the central character, but would you consider this a haunted house horror or a psychological horror or a little bit of both? I think we kind of agree that it's more of a psychological horror, right?
2: Yeah, I I think it's completely in the camp of psych horror. I for me, you could take the asylum completely out of it. Put it in a, um, I don't know, put it in a factory, put it anywhere else. It has, it really has to do with the characters and their just being on a high stress plane and being pushed off. But you know, the whole parallel with the psych thing and Mary Hobbs definitely helps illustrate the story more. Uh, You know, the tagline is something like evil is a place, but I think that's inaccurate. I feel like it's all in the people and what's going on with them. It's just illustrated, I guess, more effectively with being in the environment they're in.
1: I agree with you, but I also think that it's important to note that like they're they're basically hinting that this has to happen because they're in this same place. So it's like they're in the same place where this stuff happened. So it's not going to happen somewhere else. You know what I mean? So when they say evil is a place, I mean, it's pretty literal in my opinion. Like it's it's not really – I don't think that's meant to be – and I don't mean this like insulting your diagnosis of it. But I mean like I personally wouldn't dive any deeper into that. I think the tagline – kind of speaks to the fact like, okay, evil is a place because they're here. That's why this fucks with them. Like they have to be here for this to happen. Mm. Would you, would you disagree with that still? Uh,
2: Well, I mean, for me, you know, the, the, the stress factor of it's going on. Uh, that could exist anywhere. And, I mean, if it was if it was just a matter of a time for Gordon to just come unhinged, you know, this could have happened. The, Phil says it: you lost the two last jobs because you got you got greedy and you overbid. Well, what if he got those jobs with the same with the same tactic of we'll we'll do it in half the time? You know, that could have brought on that same stress factor. But it's in a fucking textile mill and not an asylum or something.
1: Right. And like, would they have tapped into something fucked up that happened in wherever, wherever they were in the other place or something like that? Yeah, that's,
2: that's possible. But I don't know that it affects Gordon's decisions because he's in a hospital. I don't know. I think he was just bound to self implode no matter what.
1: I'm definitely I'm definitely interested in and in supportive of your theory. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Though
2: you're wrong, <laughs> I'm definitely interested. No, no,
1: like like I'm I'm entertaining <laughs> this legitimately for sure.
2: What do you think, Adam? Was it inevitable? I,
3: no, I think the the locale is central to this story. You just cannot you cannot extract these kind of performances and kind of storylines from other places. I see what you're saying, but you know, there's clearly, it needs to have this element of being, you know, running parallel with the fact that it's in a very, very evil haunted place that is bringing out evil or is somehow attracting disturbed people to it to do bad things. I just don't see that happening in a textile mill
1: yeah brandon maybe maybe you're on some fucking like Terminator two. There is no fate but the fate we make type of shit right now.
3: Agree to disagree. <laughs> all right, do we have any more questions, boys?
2: Uh, I got I got all kinds of questions. I'm gonna rattle them off. Uh, okay. Jeff's CD he puts in the boom box. what the f- who buys f- that kind of fucking like you know, contemporary makeout hair metal shit. You know, and they ask if this is the kind of stuff you plan on listening to? I don't know yeah. if you guys listen, but he electively put that in the boombox. It's it's just trash.
1: Total garbage. As, as an extreme meddler, <laughs> I will agree with the norm that suggests that he put on fucking, what is it? He, he says, like, why don't you put on something else? Like, he lists some very, very, like, contempo norm suit wearing, like, Pussy shit. Yeah, he's a
3: John Tash or Yanni.
1: Yeah, and I, and 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 I'm gonna say I agree with him because the music he puts on is terrible. Terrible.
2: Well, it's a good thing he gets fucking whacked. One right. one less fucking doofus in the world. Uh, <laughs> is Gordon just like a total wizard at lobotomy? It's two times in a row. He he just nails Hank right, perfect in the eyeball, just just right to not kill him but make him just stupid. Uh, he
1: got, got the power of Mary Hobbs on his side.
2: Yeah, and then he retardifies the uh, McGinnis or <laughs> Magnus Greg. or whoever it is at the end of the movie. Yeah. Totally nails him too, but I don't think it kills him right off the bat. So <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on there. Maybe it is the place. Maybe he's just a wizard at lobotomy now. Um, yeah. Let's see. I guess maybe you don't have to dive into it so much, but, you know, there's Gordon talking on the phone a whole bunch to his wife. And then in the last scene, he gets his phone crunched, so he's just talking into an empty shell of a phone. But up to that point, who's he talking to? <laughs> I mean, he's calling someone where it says home a couple of times. Is he just talking to like the message machine? You know, back to back then, I don't seem to remember phones would go to voicemail. I guess,
1: but <laughs> the guy's fucking crazy, man. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> he's, just
3: he's, Maybe he's talking, talking to the that. void, man. <laughs>
2: uh, there's a little bit of a um, there's a little bit of discrepancy with. When Gordon's looking out the window and he can see the chapel, uh, you know, the stairs that lead down to the cemetery. And then yeah. when he's on that log and the headstone, the stairs are in a, in front of him, but you can see the hospital behind him. So it makes me wonder, first of all, how can he see those stairs in that direction from the hospital i mean i know it's huge and then furthermore where are they eating lunch are they eating like a mile away from the hospital because that shit is all over where those chapel stairs are it looks like and that's way the fuck away from the hospital so that's kind of weird yeah <laughs> probably only something that i would know because i watched this movie about a hundred times um i love it Yeah. And then I guess my last major questionable is maybe you guys pick this up. Is Phil Gordon's voice of reason throughout the movie? I I guess what I mean is there are scenes, you know, at the beginning when he goes, Gordon, you look tired, you need to sleep. And it kind of, he he fades into the focus, takes, takes place, you know, the main dialogue (laughs) And then in the end, when he's, when he's talking about, I need you to wake up now. I need you to take a really good look at what's going on. He's already dead at that point. He's actually, I think he's the second person that Gordon kills. So by the time he lobotomizes uh, McManus or whatever the fucking dude's name is that comes to help him out to replace Hank everyone's already dead by that point.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
2: that whole scene where he's talking to him about, you need to wake up now, you know, and then you see him talking to him in the seclusion. Did you guys pick it up at all that maybe Phil is more than just um, like an he actual person?
1: Yeah. He represents something that's more internal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could see that. I think that like, there, in my opinion, there clearly is a Phil in the movie. And that that might have just been like a like a directorial, like, artistic, like, you know, Easter egg, mm. in a way, you know, like, that. I've, if what you're saying is like, intentional, then I think that it's only meant as that and not necessarily like, to, to, to imply that, that Phil doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Although although sometimes that's exactly why they have stuff like this,
3: you know? Yeah, like, like Phil could potentially be like a Grady, you
1: know, from right. The Shining. Yep, yeah. yep, or or like for The Sixth Sense or some shit like that, you know? Well, yeah, right. that kind
2: of plays into when you think about Mary Hobbs. She's got these personality, you know, well, uh, Princess lives in the mouth because she's always talking and Billy's in the eyes because he sees everything. You know, Phil. It could be one of these branches of Gordon's inner psyche, inner conversation with himself.
1: Absolutely, you—you you got me convinced. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I, I definitely see that as a, po- a potential further creative endeavor by this director. Yeah, I like it. So that's what I got
2: for questionable. Extreme. Oh, psychotic. Get the most <laughs> dangerous ones furthest away, right? Hey, you're so smart, Phil. Whoever said you weren't smart. You know what they called what, eh? The snake pit. Now, you follow these two down and take you to sea, but I wouldn't advise walking on the floors. It's water damaged. How do we get over there? Are you guys scared of the deck? on, Over here.
3: So we're back and now we're, we've entered the awards and category uh, section of the podcast. And I'm going to top it off because this backtracks a little bit to my questions. And I totally forgot to mention this, but my quote at the top is Hank saying fucking eyeballs. They got to be worth something. (laughs) And that refers to when Hank finds that cache of coins and trinkets that kind of spill out of the wall. And I'm, And he's acting like he just struck fucking gold. Like he's going to be able to retire on this shit. And I'm like, they're really going to be worth that much, all that stuff. I don't know. But anyways, yeah, that's that's my quote.
2: That's a good one. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say there's a, I have a, several of them, but I'm going to say this one because I say this to my wife all the time. And it's really not the words, it's how it's said. When when the subliminal voice comes into Gordon's head and it goes, do it, Gordon. (laughs) 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 You know, my wife's ever on, Krista's ever on the fence about, ah, you know, should I buy this or should I get that? Do it, Gordon. It's just, it's Awesome. I love it. It's really terrifying how just out of place loud it is in the movie and uh, <laughs> yeah. I really like it. Um I also love the scene where they're they just seeing Hank, you know, lobotomized Hank and and Jeff's trying to say, "He went this way" and they're frantic frantically freaking out and uh and and Gordon says to Phil we didn't hear Annie say that he went to casino school. We heard you say that, you Mm. know, and all of this. He's accusing him basically in the stairwell. And the the quote is just, Hey, fuck you. But the (laughs) way that the, (laughs) the way that it zooms in really fast on Phil's face and he goes, Hey, fuck you. It's just, it's, it's awesome. It's worth watching a second time just to catch that. My final quote is uh, from Simon's monologue when he says, I told Mary to cut up Peter. I told her to cut him up real bad, too. Good thing his knife was brand new, real sharp. (laughs) Love it. That sounds like it's something that I would say right out of my mouth. So."
1: I could see that. Yeah. Also, I yeah. chuckled at the the zoom in and hey, fuck, fuck you. you. That's also, yeah. what I want to say to David Caruso at yeah. any given moment. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Uh, uh, John, do you have any I, quotes?
1: I'm going to take the easy road out here, just because I don't recall a lot of quotes. I, I I get I recall the ones that you guys are bringing like back to the surface, but I just love the end quote. Yeah, you it's know, great. I lived in this. The the Week in the Wounded doc. Living the Week in the Wounded. Yeah. Fucking brutal shit. Sounds like a fucking Coldest Life record or something. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it's real bad. Um, I had one more, and this refers
3: to uh, the discussion about Jeff's choice of music. But I think it was Hank or Mike or Phil. I, I can't remember exactly. But one of them says. Don't play that music, basically, because music jiggles sponge dust. Spooge dust. Spooge dust. Thank you. Jiggles
2: spooge dust into the air.
1: Music jiggles spooge dust. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that's a Hank. I remember hearing that, and I was just like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, I meant to put
3: spooge, and I think it auto-corrected when I typed it to sponge. But, yes, spooge dust.
1: Yeah.
3: Okay, uh, moving on to... Our awards section, and here we go with the top one. I think this one's going to be pretty unanimous. The Derek Zoolander Award for the biggest rube or idiot in the movie. Well, duh, Jeff.
1: Yeah, Jeff, of course. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's David Caruso, for sure.
3: (laughs) 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 All right, fair enough. Um, The Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat Award for Best Wardrobe and Makeup. Uh, I mean, I just said Hank, because... Like I, I said before, his flavor savor and also because of them sweet wraparounds.
2: Yeah. 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 That's, that's Isn't he also
1: wearing like a, like a, like a vest or something too. Like he, he there's a
2: scene, good. I think when he's uh, when he's gone back to pill for the treasure at night where he's got a cool little get up on, but um, yep. he's got a pretty swanky walk, man too. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to dial this back. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to give my Technicolor award to Mary Hobbs. I didn't I didn't pull up what the actress's name is because she's barely an actress. You see some photos of her, but looking back, her photos they totally make that character that multiple personality fucking wackadoo person for me she's got real thin almost non-existent eyebrows and she's got qualities to her face that are gaunt, but they're kind of metrosexual she could be a man could be a woman and i think that that was <coughs> intentional because there's a scene where it fades her face the photo of her face over gordon when he's standing up and he's come to realization and you can kind of see this connection there so uh she the little bit that you see mary hobbs she plays as a a a good fuck up and i'm i'm gonna give her the the award
3: yeah they do mention in some of like the trivia that i uh that i read that they intentionally kind of make mary hobbs look ambiguous like sexually gender ambiguous
2: androgynous
3: (laughs) androgynous yeah um so you agree with me on hank though or do you have uh you don't care on this one i agree with you on hank okay hank um but i like yours that was a that was a um out of the box
2: yeah that's that's because i I just talked a lot i I talked to you it's like a filibuster i talked you right into acquiescence
3: Yes, the Cosmo Kramer award for the most likely to appear in a Seinfeld episode. Uh, I kind of went with, I think, a little bit of a swerve just because I know this guy probably maybe better than you guys do. But uh, excuse me, I gave it to Larry Fezzenden, who plays Craig McManus, uh, because (laughs) if you really look at this guy, look up Larry Fezzenden, look up pictures of him. This dude looks ridiculous. Yeah. Larry Fezzenden is this Gen X independent filmmaker that makes this cameo in this movie, obviously. But he directed a movie called The Habit, which is this really weird uh, early 2000s vampire movie. He also directed a movie called The Wendigo. He does really kind of also slow burn He's very similar to Brad Anderson in a lot of ways. Right. He all of his movies have that. You were talking about how this movie has that digital. It's that early digital look to it mm-hmm. where it kind of makes it look off putting in certain ways. Yeah, like Larry Fezzenden does a lot of movies like that. He was also the producer of that movie House of the Devil. Oh, it's a yeah. tie West movie. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> So I give it to him because he just—he's balding and he's missing his front tooth. So he just looks—he looks like a muppet.
2: Well, but who would he be in Seinfeld? Would he be like a Elaine boyfriend or?
3: No, yeah. he's too fucked up looking to be an Elaine boyfriend. He's—he's yeah. he's another Kramer pal. Yeah. He's an he's—he's yeah. he's another Kramer in the gang guy. Yeah, I so. you know.
2: I gave the award to Hank. Just thinking of an Elaine's boyfriend who's got some kind of issue that you know cans it for him at the end of the episode, kind of deal.
1: When you said Elaine's that. boyfriend, I I could see McManus as as that. I I give this to to Phil. Similar to what we said in in the the last episode about like the Tobin Bell like clerk at a random store. Oh. I, I, I almost put like David Caruso's character in this movie like as like like the 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 guy that works at like the eyeglass store or something like that like <laughs> just like yeah. some, some random fucking guy that has like a really really shitty face and no personality you know? shitty
3: yeah shitty attitude yeah yeah. Okay, final one: the
1: Danny Trejo
3: Award for character most likely to have a spinoff. I also thought a little out of the box. I chose the Asylum.
2: Okay, <laughs> there you go. So, a character
1: in itself.
3: Yeah,
2: you know that. Just I don't want to go on a tangent about this, but so I don't know if you guys ever played video games, but I love
1: Mortal Kombat. Love, oh my you know, God! Let's talk. Let's have another episode of right now. Yeah, yeah, Well,
2: anyway, the newer Mortal Kombat movies—they've bought the licenses to, or Mortal Kombat games—they bought the licenses to, you know, these horror icons. You've had Freddy Krueger, Voorhees, you know, Leatherface, yep. this kind of stuff. I think if they made just a movie maniacs game like Mortal Kombat, you'd have to include inanimate things because horror. does that so much so you've got (laughs) Session 9 Asylum Danvers Asylum versus Amityville Horror House (laughs) fight they just sit there you know (laughs) that's that's it until the time elapses
1: Uh, okay that is out of the box I'm going to give the spin off to to Mary Hobbs because basically I could see James Wan making like six movies based (laughs) on that (laughs) that's true
2: all right. Yeah. Um. I gave it to Gordon. I'm thinking like a, I'm thinking like a pretty moody daytime drama, you know. Not a, not a, not a. Maybe like a, a lifetime movie, but <laughs> definitely a daytime TV show comes on right after Days of Our Lives or something, or in between NYBD Blue and Days of Our Lives or <laughs> something like that. You know, it's pretty pretty mysterious moody kind of guy
3: yeah I can see that yeah right on. So, okay so go ahead sorry
2: well I maybe I'm stepping over myself here but let's not forget what we forgot before about what's that where does this fall on a midnight clock
3: well we're not there yet you, well, you are stepping ahead that's what I'm saying Stay down there patty cakes yeah <laughs> Slow your roll. Okay, we're we're gonna get there. Okay, we gotta move into the wiki wormhole, which tops off with the body count, which as far as I can tell is seven. seven. And I read that. That's seven.
2: Yeah. You got the crew plus the baby and um Wendy, Gordon's wife.
3: Mm, yeah. Right. So there we go. I'm gonna stop I'm gonna top off the wormhole because I'm sure you're you're gonna wanna fill this out. But I didn't know if you caught this one. And since I am The only resident of Seattle currently in this uh, trio. The score to session nine was composed by Seattle, Washington-based experimental band Climax Golden Twins. So there you go, little shout out.
2: I did catch that.
3: Um, go ahead, take it, take it away, Brandon.
2: Well, a couple of the more interesting facets of uh, of the trivia here. Uh, only three rooms had additions outside of a natural setting for atmosphere. The kitchen had meat hooks hung, the tunnel had plastic surgical gloves hung up, and the hydrotherapy room had a metal tub added. Almost everything else related to the asylum setting was found on site as the crew scoured the building for the set dressing to keep uh, keep things authentic. The film, The <laughs> filmmakers even reported finding old patient tissues and blood samples on the premises, which they did not film out of fear. Gross. (laughs) Yeah. Talking about germaphrods. Gross. Yeah. Um, so there was an interesting bit. Now, I don't know how much I would stock, I would put into it, but there was an interesting kind of paranormal, um, blurb in here. Uh, just about feeling and seeing goofy shit um, in a couple of the scenes. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, Well, while I'm looking for that, I will mention about the filming. Um, This was one of the first features film shot on Sony's 24p HD video, which shoots at 24 frames per second, like film, as opposed to the 30 frames per second uh, of the conventional ntsc video using this technology brad anderson and director of the photography Uta briswitz excuse my butchering of the name were able to produce a uniquely effective deep focus image using mostly natural light so yeah. that's kind of cool uh i i think sometimes it looks a little bit soap opera but whatever um it does look pretty cool, though. It definitely looks interesting. And like you said, it's kind of of the time. Um,
3: yeah. This is like, an, you know, the limitations of the technology at the time, for sure.
2: Right. Yeah. I'm looking for this paranormal bit, but uh, can't find it. Anyway, some paranormal spooky feelings going on during the shooting by both... Uh, David Caruso, and it was also cited by uh, Peter Mullen, the guy that plays Gordon. Um, just s- some spooky feelings, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, whatever. You seen some shit? You know what they say. If you see something, say something. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's really I care all I care to comment on as far as the wormhole goes.
3: No, I got one then. I've got a few then. So in the scene behind the tunnel with the rubber gloves, the cast and crew signed the wall. Brad Anderson wrote, we did as best as we could. Uh,
2: That's good. (laughs) He's a real punisher. Okay, here. I'll hit you with this one because I alluded to it earlier. A large subplot was ultimately cut involving a homeless woman who lived and lurked among the building and the workers The filmmakers deleted this test because test viewings found her to confuse viewers who thought she was Mary Hobbs, the patient on the tapes. You know, ultimately you watch both versions. Like when, like I said, when you have the DVD, it has the full uncut thing and they're both good, but I could definitely see why they cut it.
3: Yeah. Uh, I thought this one was also kind of cool and added to the creepy factor of this. Danvers, Massachusetts, which was the location of the filming, was originally known as Salem Village, which was one location for the Salem Witch Trials in the 1600s. Ooh.
2: Yeah, lots of lots of tie-ins to the real deal. Um, the Patricia Willard scandal that the men talk about during the lunch break was based on a popular book that was being debunked around the time of the filming titled Michelle Remembers. It was endorsed by Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> And mentioned Hmm. satanic rituals, repressed memories, human sacrifices, and molestation. The author of the novel later came forward and admitted it was all planted in her head. Whoa. Bring back
3: the satanic panic. Yeah. Bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it back.
2: No shit. Um, Yeah. So. Nope. Thought I found it, but I didn't. Yeah, that's really all I got
3: good great fantastic well we're uh we're getting up to the two hour mark i'm trying to condense this as best as we can to one and a half hours but i think with the new format we we might be it might be more reasonable to keep it at two hours and if people don't like it they can hey they can get
2: down on their knees and suck my dick yeah i could go (laughs) suck an egg uh you know more more bang for your buck
3: you know yeah, that's right. Okay, so now we're at the point where we're going to rate this and yes, Brandon, we will bring back the Midnight Clock Awards. So, but before we do that, let's come up with the iconography. What out of 5 do we rate this? What five things? I've got mine, but you you go ahead, Brandon. This is your movie. Go. Uh session tapes. Real-to-real okay. session tapes. Yeah, no. out of 5 session tapes. John, out of 5 what?
1: oh oh we each choose one uh yeah yeah and then we decide which one's the best all right all right um come back to me i'm thinking i'm thinking what's yours Adam? okay out of five creepy wheelchairs (laughs) okay all right i'm gonna say five dumb dead babies (laughs) dumb dead babies Well, I think we have it there, folks, out of five
3: dumb dead babies, right?
2: Hey, we could use we could use six of those, you know what I'm saying?
3: <laughs> uh, Brandon, what do you give this? This is your movie. I think I know what I'm going to hear from you.
2: Well, I you know, I shy from saying anything is perfect, except for the first TCM. I think that is a perfect film. No time wasted. But this is yeah. up there. For me, I'm going to give this a... Pff- I'm going to say, can I split a dumb dead baby in half? Why not? It's fucking half. dead. Four and a half dumb dead
1: babies. All right. John, what do you give it? I'm going to give this three dumb dead babies. Would have been 10 if David Crusoe wasn't in it. Gotcha.
3: <laughs> I love it because I feel like John is going to be the perennial, um, I guess, grump. Of the three of us uh, when it comes to the rating. That's good. Maybe. We'll see. Um, I'm going to give it three and a half. I would have. Yeah. I, I like this better this time around. It definitely helped me to kind of tear away some of the layers. So I'm going to give it out of three and a half dumb dead fucking babies. <laughs> oh, I love okay. That. So the, the midnight clock, that's the thing we haven't done in a while. Brandon, you you and i we kind of discussed bringing it back so originally the premise was that because this is midnight flicks and we're trying to actually establish if the movies that we're watching are in fact midnight cult movies where does it lie on the midnight clock so is it you know is it a little tamer? is it something you can watch to the, with the family or, or watch with your girlfriend before midnight or is it something that like it's so fucking depraved that you can only be watching it at, like 3 a.m eyes glazed just staring into the fucking screen by yourself while your significant other or family are upstairs wondering like what is this maniac doing downstairs right <laughs> so where does this sit on the midnight clock for you brandon
2: uh, I, I don't think this is Cretan fair. I don't think this is just for total fucking basement dwellers or anything. I think that you put the kids to bed and you watch this film. There's not really a lot of nudity. The, most of the violence and things that happen it is pretty suggested. I think this falls squarely in the 10 p.m. territory.
0: All right. Completely, what do you think, John?
1: Completely would mirror that. I would say from 10 to 12... And you know what? That's when I watched it. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But hey, let's, let's, uh, I think we could all unanimously say that this would probably give some of those early, you know, early viewers, those 10 o'clockers, some spooky nightmares to fuck them up Mm -hmm. all night upon first watch.
1: I'll, I'll agree that it's not good to go to bed at midnight pondering, you know, multiple personality disorder
2: and, and fucking strangling your own child because mom poured some pasta on you. Some creepy pasta. You know what I'm saying?
3: Oh, I know what you're saying. Heavy heebie jeebies, creepy pasta for sure.
1: That should have been the five, five creepy pastas, creepy pasta pot. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
3: Creepy pasta, pasta water is getting spilt on my leg. That's right
2: uh what, what what about you adam
3: oh yeah i agreed.
1: yeah same between 10, 10 and 12 we all say 10 o'clock unanimously right 10 and 12 somewhere in that yeah anyways That's a beautiful a beautiful thing okay so here we
3: go this is very exciting we're getting to that point where john it is your turn in the queue to pick Ooh. the next movie and boy I can't wait to hear what you got in store for us. So go ahead, let us have it, John. What are we watching next time?
1: All right, are you fucking amateurs ready for this? I got <laughs> I got my calendar <laughs> out. I'm ready. All right. So, this week and discussing next week, we are going to be watching the Rick Rosenthal, director of Halloween 2, very underrated 1983 classic Bad Boys starring Kevin nice. Ten. And Ally Sheedy. Fucking love it. Love it. My man. Yeah. Hell yeah.
3: No. Let's, I'm fucking, pretty, go. I, let's fucking go. Let's fucking go. Yeah, I'm, I'm into that one. That's sick.
2: Let's fucking go indeed.
3: Excellent. Okay. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks, as always, to Charlotte Blythe for our intro music. Once again, this week's episode is produced by Barth gloom. Thank you. Thank you very much. Barth gloom. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. Uh, we've got, uh, our band of the week this week is take it away. John
1: band of the week is going to be spine Kansas city's beautiful, hardcore outlet. Um, they just, uh, finished up a, uh, tour of, around the midwest um they got a new album coming out which i i won't say too much of because it's you know not a whole lot has been announced by the label um but they got a new album coming out on convulse records um and uh yeah we'll be uh listening to the song rain down off of their excellent land of violence 12 inch ep on bridge nine records
3: Excellent. Yeah, they just played in my uh hometown Fort Wayne and I heard it was a, a smashed bang up packed house. So glad to see that the boys are uh hitting the circuit again there.
2: Kansas City Bad Boys.
3: Oh yeah. For sure. All right, sick. So uh we'll see you next time folks. Uh everybody uh let's uh yeah, let's get them Bad Boys going. All right. See ya.
0: Bye.